All right, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. It's almost football season. In fact, I guess some games have already started, but I don't watch pro football just because, I don't know, I'm a college football fan. Hasn't started yet, but I'm really excited. You say, why are you talking about football? Well, because in football, one of the most important things that you can do is learn your fundamentals. That's true whether it's football, baseball, whatever sport you play. And today we're going to go back to some fundamentals. We're going to take a break from Exodus for a little bit. And I wanted to begin today in Matthew chapter 28. Um, And we're going to talk about the Great Commission. So the Christian faith and the message of the gospel is not something that is to be confined within the four walls of our churches. Though that's really what the world wants us to do. The world is intolerant of the true gospel while embracing a false gospel of anything and everything goes in the name of love. Have you ever noticed that? If you love me, you won't tell me anything that's going to disagree with me. If you love me, then you're going to let me do whatever I want. You're going to let me think whatever I want. You're going to let me be whatever I want. But as parents, if we did that with our children, we'd have our children's taken away from us. Because at, at a certain level, even society knows that, that that's not right. It's not only not right, but it's destructive. But yet this is the gospel that we often hear proclaimed today. In the name of love, people should be able to do or think or be whatever they want. And no one, certainly not a church or a pastor or a Bible, should tell them any different. But love is not promiscuous and love is not perverse. Love is not sin in any shape or in any form, whether it's hidden or whether it's right out in the open. Love is not Hedonism, love is not moralism, love is not humanism. In fact, love is not any type of ism at all. The first thing love is, is a person. The Bible teaches us that God is love. And God is not a force in the universe. God is a person. Manifest in the Father in the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. And the God who is love is the God who hates sin. And he hates sin so much that he gave his only begotten Son to defeat it. I don't know any human being that would give their only child to defeat defeat sin on behalf of people who hate him and reject him. Yet that is exactly what God did. And he didn't send the son unwillingly. The son came willingly. 
because of his love for the Father and because of his love for us, his people. And God's hatred of sin was so great that he allowed his son to die in order that it would be defeated. God's children should have a love for their father to such a degree that they hate sin as much as their father in heaven hates it. We are to be disciples with a love for God that necessitates a hatred of sin. The same love for God should motivate us and necessitate our obedience to him. So today, as we look at the Great Commission and the fundamentals of what it means to be a Christian, may God in his kind grace be extended to us so that we may be a people in love with our God and joyful in our obedience to him in all things. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, to obey all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Jesus spoke, it's recorded for us in Luke's gospel, chapter 24, verses 46 through 48. Still the great commission. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses to these things. So we are called to make disciples as disciples. We are called to make disciples. We are called to go baptizing them and teaching them to obey all things that Jesus has commanded. We are called to preach repentance and remission of sins. We like the remission of sins part but we don't like the repentance part. But there is no remission of sins without repenting from sin. We're called to be powerful witnesses of Christ. In the great commission recorded for us in the book of Acts, Jesus tells his disciples, go and wait in the city of Jerusalem until the Father sends his promise, which was the Holy Spirit. And when that promise is poured out, you will be endued, you will be filled with power from on high that you may be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And later in that same book of Acts in the fourth chapter, we see those same disciples praying to God, asking that he would fill them, that they would be able to speak his word with boldness. We are to be a people that are powerful witnesses for Christ who are willing and able to speak his word with boldness. We are commanded to make disciples. To make disciples 
you must be a disciple. So there's an understanding when Jesus says to his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, he understood and they understood that they were his disciples and he commands his disciples to go and to reproduce themselves, to make disciples. That's really what we're talking about. We see this throughout creation and it's not an accident. Sometimes we think Jesus must have walked around and thought, oh, here's a good idea. I think I'll use grapes and grapevines to teach my, my disciples something. Oh, here's a great idea. I think I'll use uh, childbirth to help them understand what it means to be born again. No, God created the world in that way because this is all about him and the gospel. This is all about him and his church and everything God has created is communicating that truth to us. So when Jesus said, you must be born again, it wasn't an accident that he used that metaphor of being born again. He created the world around us that communicates this is how we are saved. How do puppies and kittens reproduce? Well, they give birth. And they give birth again, and they give birth again, and they give birth again. And from generation to generation, if you've ever had cats, you know that's how it happens. Or if you've ever raised rabbits, you know that's how it happens. Well, guess what? This is how God created people. In the same way we've come to populate our earth with real physical people through real physical births, God says the way that He's going to spread his name and his glory is through the new birth. And the new birth comes through the preaching of the gospel. And when those babies are born, guess what has to happen? Somebody needs to raise them up. It's just like all these babies around us. You notice not one of these little babies is too far from a mama or a daddy or a grandma or somebody that loves them. There's a reason why we just don't open the door and tell those kids to go out there and play in the parking lot while we have church in here and let them fend for themselves because that's not what you do with babies. That's not what you do with children. You say, well, what does discipleship look like? A lot of people think discipleship is a class you take. You spend two or three hours in a class and you get a certificate that says, I'm now a disciple of Jesus. Sorry, that's not how it works any more than you have the baby and then you go take a class on parenting and after you take the class, you got the certificate for the parenting class and then you just let the kid go. And hopefully, he makes it or she makes it on their own. That's not how it works. So how are these babies going to be raised up in responsible young men and women? How are disciples of Jesus going to be raised up? Well, if you were paying attention, it was probably hard to miss, but discipleship was happening on the front row here this morning. You know, did they all, did they all perform flawlessly? No, absolutely not. Why? Because they're little babies. So I don't want to stand up. I want to lay down. I want to play with my line. I want to play with Superman. And that's fine. But you know what? At some point in time, even Pawpaw, when they say, Pawpaw, can we stand by you? Well, yeah, you can stand by me. But you got to obey. Got to worship. 
And so you know what part of discipleship is? Part of discipleship is the, is the trial and error of teaching our little ones how to worship. Do they have short attention spans? Yes, but guess what? We do too. And we don't think anything about how we raise up children. I mean, we, they just, we just understand, you know, there's things you got to do. You know, they're going to make a mess when they learn how to eat their macaroni and cheese with a fork or a spoon. They're going to get it all over them, all over the floor, all over the table, all over the chair. Sometimes, you know, you're going to be riding in the car and, and they're going to get diarrhea, as happened yesterday on their way home from visiting my family. And, you know, there it comes, right all out into the car seat. It's what babies do sometimes, right? It just happens. It just happens. And we, we put that on bumper stickers on our car. We drive around and we think it's cute and we just say, it happens. It really happens. And, and sometimes it happens and guess what? Somebody's got to clean it up. Somebody's got to endure the smell. Somebody's got to deal with the inconvenience of it. And when Jesus commands his disciples, go therefore and make disciples, Jesus understood, even if his disciples may not have understood in the moment, Jesus understood that making disciples is just like raising children. It's messy. It's trying. It's hard work. It's frustrating. Because there's going to be a lot of times they're going to get it wrong before they get it right. But what do you do? Nowhere does Jesus say, give up. Nowhere does Jesus say, walk away. He just gives a command to go forward, and he never says to stop. Now, he does say when he sends his disciples out, if you go and you preach and they reject you, then move on to the next person. But that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about making disciples. When someone says, I want Jesus. When a little child says, I want to worship Jesus, will you teach me how? You better understand that it's not going to probably work out just the way you want it to, but you got to start somewhere and you got to endure the failures in order to get to the successes. And when Jesus commands us to go and to make disciples, he understands that we're going to experience lots of failure, lots of mess. This is why Peter asks Jesus, Jesus, how many times do I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven times? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. Parents, how many times are you going to help your child that needs your help when they fail? You're going to give them two times, three times, and then I'm not doing it anymore? Boy, you better learn how to walk. That's your third time. If you fall down one more time, I'm, I'm not going to, that's done. You just, uh, you don't learn to walk, that's on you. We don't do that, do we? In fact, if you watch parents and their little babies learn how to walk, they're all excited. And, and, and it's like, they're just ready for that baby to walk. Why aren't we like that when we disciple people in Jesus Christ? Why don't we get excited about them learning how to walk? Why don't we look past their falling down? Why don't we get excited and motivated when they almost make it, but then they fail? 
Why don't we run to them and take them by the hand and say, come on, stand up, let's try it again. Because that's the way the world, that's the world God created. We, we don't disciple Christians any different than we raise children. But we don't think of it the same way. You say, well, but those aren't my children. That's my child. You know, I love my child. Well, guess what? Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. So you are to love one another. And that is even a greater love. There is no greater love than the love Jesus has for us. And Jesus commands us to love one another with that greatest love. So that's not a valid excuse. In fact, love demands and love commands that we do this, that we make disciples. So he says, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them. Baptism is the outward sign that identifies us as covenant members of Christ's body. Baptism, like circumcision, is an outward sign that is administered once to signify a continuing inward reality. This is real important. The evidence of all that baptism signifies is not in the public display of the sign itself. We're going to baptize Alden this, today, this morning. And it's not, it's not the photograph or the mental picture of the act of baptizing someone that that is important. It's what that baptism signifies and represents. It's what's going to come out of that. It's what that baptism speaks of. The evidence of all that baptism signifies is through the outward manifestation of a growing inward faith, a faith that is planted in our heart by God. This is like this parable of the sower, Jesus says the sower goes out and he sows seed. And he gives four different types of ground that the seed falls on. There's only one type of ground that produces fruit. It's good soil. And some produce fruit, a harvest, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. And he says the seed is the word of God. The word of God, the gospel, is the power of God to salvation, Paul writes in Romans 1.16. It's God who plants the seed in our heart, and that seed grows. Anybody ever plant a tree from a seed, from an acorn? You ever seen a tree grow from a little bitty sapling to a... I can remember every tree I've planted in my yard, and I've planted probably close to 40 trees. And I can remember planting them, wondering if they would ever get big enough for my children or grandchildren to climb in. It's taken a long time, but they're there. I have trees that are big enough now to climb in. But they started out just a little seed. How did they grow? They grew over time. They grew through a process. How do we grow 
We grow over time. We grow through a process. Guess what? There were a lot of long, hot summers in the middle of the drought that I had to water my trees just to keep them alive. And they didn't thrive, but they survived. There's times in our life where we know that we're not thriving, but we are surviving. And guess what? We need people. This is the command to make disciples. As disciples, we need to be involved in people's life, not only to help them thrive, but sometimes just to help them survive. And we need to be in it for the long haul, understanding that it takes time and it's a process for them to grow up into maturity, just like it's a process for our children to grow up into maturity. Baptism itself is an act of faith in the promise of God. It is God who saves us, not baptism. Now listen to the words of Peter recorded for us in Acts 2, 38 and 39. And Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Baptism is an act of faith in the promise of God that our sins are forgiven and that the gift of the Holy Spirit is given. Baptism is an act of faith in God's promise to us and to our children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. In Acts 2.39, Peter gives voice to the promise of God toward those who believe and to their children. And this is a reason believing parents should trust in the promise of God concerning their children and disciple them accordingly to trust and to obey God. That's why we don't give up on our children. Because God has made promises. It's why when we disciple spiritual children, we don't give up on them because God has made promises. Jesus commands us to make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey. Obedience is better than sacrifice. That's the words of the prophet Samuel to, the, to King Saul when Saul disobeyed God. And Samuel comes and, he, and, and, and Saul says, well, I sacrificed. I gave God an animal, gave him a dead animal. You know, that's what he likes, dead animals. Saul thought that he had dodged the bullet because he gave God a dead animal. And Samuel says, Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. Christian, don't forget that. You better learn that. You better remember it. To obey is better than than sacrifice. I used to have a guy that'd come by and he'd bring me money. He'd say, my business is kind of down. I feel like I need to pay my tithe. He'd come and bring me a check. One day I sat him down. I said, you know, you can't pay God off. You can't pay God. If you think you're paying God off, I just want you to, I appreciate your money. I appreciate your gift. But I don't want to take your gift under the illusion that you think you're able to Offer a sacrifice to God, pay him off, and now God's going to, you know, bless you. To obey is better than sacrifice. As we obey God through faith, we should trust in God's promise to us and God's promise to our children and to as many as are afar off. Listen to the words of Moses. 
Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 through 6. Actually, these are the words of God recorded by Moses. These are the first two commandments. Exodus 20, verse 3, God speaking here, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting, listen, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations to those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. What do you hear there? Do you hear the wrath and the judgment of God or do you hear the grace of God? Do you know most people who read that verse hear the wrath and the judgment of God and they mean, you mean God is going to punished to the third and fourth generation because of some father's sin? That's horrible. You've missed the whole point. You've missed the grace and the mercy of God. Listen to what God says. Listen to the grace of God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who Hate me, but showing mercy to thousands. That's not thousands of people. Don't misread that. Learn how to read your Bible. That's not thousands of people God's showing mercy to. That's a countless number of people. That's thousands of generations. He's only going to let the iniquity pass through the third and fourth generation, but he's going to show his mercy to thousands of generations to those who love me and keep my commandments. To those who hate God, God will let them have three or four generations of hard times, hopefully to turn them around. But to those who love them, he will show mercy for thousands of generations. That's a long time. Just want to let you know, a generation at a minimum is 40 years. It could be as long as, well, we know it's as long as 70, maybe even more than that. Some people say it could be as long as 120 years. But let's just say it's 40 years. Thousands. 40 times 1,000 is how many? 40,000. He doesn't say to a thousand generations, he said to thousands of generations. Listen, Jesus could come back tonight, but if he doesn't, don't be surprised. Because God has made promises to thousands of generations. And he's speaking to his people and he's telling his people, hey, get busy. Disciple, raise your children, make disciples. Baptize them, teach them to obey, fill the earth with my glory. My mercy and my promise is to thousands of generations, to those that love me and keep my commands. For those who love him and keep his commands, God's promise of mercy is beyond our comprehension. And this is why believing parents should cling to the promise of God toward their children 
and their children's children, raising them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord because God commands us to. And God has promised His mercy toward us and to them even to a thousand, to thousands of generations. To make disciples of Jesus Christ is to baptize them. It's to teach them to obey all that He commands. And God is not a man that He should lie. He keeps His promises. If you have never trusted in Jesus, obey Him, call upon His name, and put your trust in Him. And if you are trusting in Jesus, and you've never been baptized, I would invite you to get wet with me today. Because you need to, in obedience to the Scripture, be baptized. Through baptism, we are identified with Christ in His death, His burial, and His resurrection. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So Jesus commands that we make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to obey. Jesus commands that we repent, that we trust in Jesus. And to trust in Jesus is to repent of our sin. In Luke 24, 46, he says, in verse 47, he says, the preaching of repentance and remission of sins must go forth to all nations. Sin is a topic we do not like to discuss today, especially in church. Kind of funny, isn't it? You think church would be a place that you talk about sin, but did you know that talking about sin in church has fallen out of favor? It's just not something that is recommended anymore. All the church growth experts will tell you, if you spend a lot of time talking about sin, people aren't going to be happy. So you probably should minimize or at least mask the way you talk about it so that people don't really know you're talking about sin because if they know you're really talking about sin, they're not going to want to come to your church. And after all, that's what we're here for, right? Is to, to make as many people come to our church as possible. I mean, the more people we have, Sitting in these pews, putting money in the plate, the more money. I mean, that's, that's a successful church, right? Wrong. If the church can't talk about sin, then who's going to talk about it? If sin has fallen out of vogue in the church, then where on earth is the message that we are commanded to repent of our sin Who's going to talk about that if the church isn't going to talk about it? You know what? No one's going to talk about it. That's exactly the point. No one will talk about it. And a lot of people would be happy because a lot of people don't want to hear that message of sin. But you are fortunate because you have a pastor that's just dumb enough to get up in the pulpit and talk about sin and your need to repent of it. And if you are in sin, let me just remind you, you need to repent. We are here for Jesus. You are created for his glory. You're not here for your own happiness, though if you will devote your life to him, commit your life to him, and trust him, you will find happiness beyond your wildest imagination. But if you think you can just skip through life and you never have to worry about sin, you are so sadly mistaken. And if you think that you 
can just live your life any way you want. And when you get ready to deal with your sin, after you've had all of your fun, and God surely will understand. Let me promise you, no, he does not understand. He calls that attitude sin. And he warns us and he says, you don't know if tomorrow will come for you. James says, don't say, hey, we're going to go to this town, buy and sell for a year and make all these great plans. James says, don't do that because you don't know if you're even going to see tomorrow. We don't know if we're going to see the rest of today. We were down at the coast and I went fishing, caught no fish. To, uh, we caught some fish, but really you didn't we didn't catch any fish. There was nothing we could keep legally. Nothing we could eat or that we would want to eat. Caught a few fish. It was fun. But while we were down there, we, we were out in the boat and we saw the red helicopters flying. We wondering what that red helicopter is. We got in and we found out that it was actually a, a young man that my, my, uh, my nephew and his family knew. It, it, was, it was actually the doctor who performed all four knee surgeries on my brother and my sister-in-law. His 22-year-old son and a friend of theirs were out fishing. They were wade fishing, and they had power-pulled their boat and got out of the boat and were wading. And it was a pretty rough day we were out there. And, uh, and the boat worked loose, and there in Port O'Connor, where they were, the current is really strong, and the boat took off. And both young men started swimming, trying to catch the boat. And one, it was dark. One young man realized we were not going to catch the boat, so he says, we got to get to shore, and he breaks off and goes to shore, and the other young man, the son of the doctor, was never, when we left, they had not found his body yet. Now, that young man, that 22-year-old young man, don't know anything about him, but here's what I do know. I can promise you, when he left to go fishing that afternoon, there was not a thought in his mind that I'm going to go fishing, and I'm, and I'm, I'm going to die and never come back home. He went fishing, thinking he was going to go fishing. He was going to finish fishing. He was going to get in his boat. He was going to drive back home and do whatever he had planned to do that Friday night, Thursday night. But it didn't happen. He was not planning on drowning in Matagorda Bay. What am I saying to you? I'm saying... You better cherish today because you don't know if you have tomorrow. And don't, don't, don't be okay with your sinfulness today thinking that you've got plenty of time to take care of it because you don't know that. And I wouldn't be a good pastor and I wouldn't be a good Christian if I told you anything other than that reality. God has not called us to win popularity from men, but to win souls from hell. We're commanded to witness with power. Jesus commanded his disciples to go and wait in Jerusalem. And you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit as an earnest of our inheritance, as the seal of our salvation, and as the source of power for our witness we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can be 
powerful witnesses to him, starting in our family. You say, where do I start? Start with your family. Parents, start with your children. I'll say it today when we baptize Alden. Parents, the most important disciple you will make is your child, will be your children. Start in your own heart and move out from there. In too much of Christendom today, the Holy Spirit is seen as a force around us instead of a person of the Godhead that lives within us. God did not give us the Holy Spirit so that we can do spiritual tricks. He gave us the Holy Spirit that we would walk in the power of His life and make manifest that life in all of life for all the world. That's our motto, Christ in all of life for all the world. Where should Christ be manifest? He should be manifest in all of our life for all of the world. We've been put here on this earth to give witness to Christ and the glory of God. Therefore, we are to speak his word with boldness. When the disciples came back from healing the lame man and they got in trouble because they preached Jesus in the temple, they rejoiced that they had been persecuted for their faith. And they came back and they began to praise God. And they said these words in Acts 4.29, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. What is the sign that we are filled with the Holy Spirit? It is that we speak the word of God with boldness. Speaking his word with boldness is not just about the, the words coming out of our mouth. Speaking his word with boldness is about the message our life communicates to all those around us. In other words, it's not just what we say and how we say it. It's what we live and how we live it. We are the church. That means we are disciples of Jesus Christ. We are commanded to go and to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that he commands. In obedience to the Great Commission, we are going to baptize a disciple today. His name is Alden Everett Ulmer. Alden Everett Ulmer, are you ready to be baptized? There's the thumbs up. In obedience to the command of Jesus, we will baptize Alden, and it will be the responsibility of his parents and all of us to teach him through our words and our deeds, to show him what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And as we do so, God has promised his mercy to thousands of generations afterward. So mom and dad, take great hope because the promise that you are seeing fulfilled today, the promise of God fulfilled in your son is the promise that goes to him, to his children, to his children's children as far off as many as the Lord will call. All right, so we're going to get ready. Uh, and I want to just, before I go to change, I want to...
give some just brief instruction. So we've already talked about baptism and why we're baptizing. We've already mentioned that baptism does not save us, but it's the outward sign of what is inward, what is in us. And when we talk about baptism, we're not just talking about the things that Bennett and Catherine and their family are responsible for. When we baptize anyone, we are all responsible because Alden is baptized into the body of Christ, but he's a member of Christ's fellowship. And so Christ's fellowship, the body of Christ's fellowship, has a responsibility. Now, they've already dedicated their children. And in that dedication ceremony, they acknowledge the need for the cleansing blood of Jesus and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit. They acknowledge that they trust in God's covenant promise on Alden's behalf and on behalf of all their children. They've acknowledged their faith in the Lord Jesus and they're looking to Alden's salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. They have unreservedly dedicated their children to God in the promise and the reliance upon His grace. And they have promised to set before Alden a godly example to pray, to teach him the doctrines of the faith, to strive by all the means of God's grace and God's appointment to bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's on the basis of that faith, and we're going to talk to Alden in a little bit when we get ready to baptize him, and you're going to hear him confess his faith. But I want you, congregation, to acknowledge through a hearty amen, do you, congregation, undertake the responsibility of a covenant community in assisting these parents in the Christian nurture of this child? If so, please signify by saying, Amen. I would invite you to stand. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. He didn't say you were a salt substitute. He didn't say you were like salt. He said you were salt. Salt is a preservative. And we are light that dispels darkness, and we are salt that preserves life, sustains. Your charge today is from Jesus himself. I pray that you do not take it for granted and that you do not underestimate the force of his command. I pray that you would begin with your own heart and move out from there. We are his disciples. Let us not fail to obey his command. Here is the charge Jesus gave his disciples before he ascended to the throne. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, to obey all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen.